This is Retrogram, a podcast revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Program number 7718, BSW, covering the week of May 2nd, 1977. Welcome back to Retrogram. I know in a previous installment I said we were boldly marching into the 90s, and we will... But with my ramshackle random process of research and writing, as well as my recent exciting adventures in the world of multimedia freelancing, this show was the one that was completed first. But what timing? Memorial Day weekend is kind of the birthday of the logbook.com itself, and it's the birthday of Retrogram's first episode, which dropped way back in 2019. But now, venture back with me to the week of May 2nd, 1977. They say there are moments that divide our lives, events where everything happened either before that event or after it. So let's call this 1977 BSW. In the days leading up to this momentous week, comedian John Oliver was born. And yes, he was born in England. I love his show. Hey John, I dare you to come watch some old TV shows with me in a future episode of Retrogram. That would be a career highlight. For me, probably not for him. Italian astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti was born too, the future record holder for the longest stay in space by a woman, though that record has now been broken. Another birthday boy, Tom Welling, the future star of Smallville, Studio 54 opened in New York City, and Polaroid went public with its Polavision home movie camera, which used film in enclosed cartridges and looked, well, like crap, actually. You probably had better image fidelity from Silly Putty, and Polaroid lost a heap of money producing and trying to market this system. The Federal Highway Administration rolled out a plan to convert all highway signs in the United States to metric between July 1st and September 30th of 1978, a plan that got quashed in Congress after a massive public outcry because, hey, we're America and we just don't do metric. They probably produced a stack of signatures weighing the same as four adult walruses, from people who refused to do metric. If you put every page of signatures from end to end, you could build a bridge to Bermuda, however the hell far away that is, because now we're just guessing at distances. More successful was the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, handing down new regulations to make public buildings wheelchair accessible and outlawing discrimination against people with handicaps, including discrimination by employers and schools. It's nice to see that some progress got made, even though the failure to adopt the metric system meant that the regulations had to stipulate that wheelchair accessibility ramps had to be at least six adult walruses in length. Now, you'd be laughing out loud if John Oliver was saying that. Led Zeppelin lured over 76,000 fans into Detroit's Pontiac Silverdome for a concert, and the nitty-gritty Dirt Band became the first American rock band to gain permission to tour the Soviet Union. During the week of May 2nd itself, the first David Frost interview with former President Richard Nixon was televised, with Nixon having been paid over half a million dollars to appear. But fortunately, there was much better TV on that week, and that's what we're talking about in this retrogram. This week is also a snapshot in time, the last reasonably packed week of genre TV series to roll out before a little movie called Star Wars hit theaters. Now, in 1977, movies didn't drop day and date everywhere. Long ago, in an episode of the Don't Give This Tape to Earl podcast, I did some archaeology and discovered that I couldn't have seen Star Wars in my hometown any earlier than July 29, 1977. So keep that in mind. Everyone knows that Star Wars premiered on May 25, 1977, but that was in L.A., not everywhere. The world was different then, and so were the shows. What did the American broadcast networks, and at least one British one, consider sci-fi and fantasy 
and the days before George Lucas came in and kicked over all of the apple carts of what we expected from that genre. The Bionic Woman, Once a Thief, aired Wednesday, March 4th, 1977 on ABC. The story so far, and just a reminder, dear listeners, that the following information is classified top secret with a level 6 clearance authorization. Jamie Summers' reasonably ordinary life as a pro tennis player ended when her old sweetheart, Steve Austin, a.k.a. the $6 million man, took her skydiving. Well, he went skydiving, Jamie's parachute failed, and she went skydropping. Since Steve's life had already been saved by bionic implant surgery, he insisted that his boss, Oscar Goldman, do the same for Jamie. So Oscar does for Jamie precisely what he did for Steve. Saves her life because we have the technology and employs her as a secret agent, except that her body started to reject the implants during her first mission. It seemed as though she died, but eventually she was resuscitated and resumed her double life as the bionic woman. Once a Thief a small-time burglar named Inky slams down some serious shots at the local bar. He's telling the bartender that the latest house he broke into was occupied by a woman with amazing strength. After hearing this story, the bartender cuts Inky off for the night. Inky makes his way to the local thieves' den, where crooks give the local crime boss their latest stolen goods, make a bit of money, and he ships the wares out of town to be sold off. Inky again tells the story of the woman who threw a sofa at him with one hand, and no, this guy's not buying it any more than the bartender did. In fact, Inky now has nowhere to turn to sell anything he steals. He decides he's going to make people believe him. He's going to prove that there's a woman who can chuck a sofa at him. He goes back to Jamie's ranch house, waits for her to leave, and then does some property damage in broad daylight. He hides in a tree with a film camera and waits for her to return. He films her performing various bionic feats to fix her place up, and the coup de grace being her jumping up to her own roof and bending her TV antenna back into shape by herself. When she gets into her car that evening to go to a teacher's meeting, Inky's waiting for her, gun in hand. He tells her to drive to his place, where, when he walks in the door, he's attacked by his pet chimpanzee, which causes him to drop his gun. Now Jamie's got the drop on him, but the gun was never loaded. Inky tells her that he's filmed her doing all kinds of bionic things, and the film is in a safe deposit box. Blackmail time. If she wants to make sure no one ever sees that film, she has to help Inky pull off a major heist with her abilities. He lets her go home to think it over. Jamie, of course, consults with Oscar, because Oscar always has his eye on keeping his bionic agent's secret. His suggestion is for Jamie to go along with Inky's plan, while Oscar sets Inky up to take a major fall. Jamie questions Oscar's ruthlessness, but agrees to set Inky up for the fall. However, because Inky can't stop himself from blabbing once he's had a drink or two, soon his friend the bartender knows all about his plan to hit the local bank. And his friend the bartender tells his friend the crime boss, who plans to rob Inky after Inky robs the bank with his new mystery partner. The criminals are also watching as Oscar and the police plan where the cop cars will be to catch Inky in the act. Wheels within wheels, schemes within schemes, and it's all set to go down on Memorial Day while the bank is closed for business. So far, so good. So they think. Inky and Jamie are in the bank and into the vault without any difficulty. They emerge from the bank with a cool three million in cash and walk into the waiting hands of Inky's former pals from the criminal underworld. Because the crooks knew just how to stay out of sight of the police, the cops weren't expecting this, and the crooks get the drop on the cops as well. Oscar's plan has just whizzed down the drain. At gunpoint, Inky is told exactly where to drive, down an alley and up a ramp into a waiting moving truck, like he's driving the 1977 version of the Night Industries 2000. The truck, with Inky, Jamie, the cash, and even Inky's chimp inside, takes off. With Inky's car no longer on the road, the cops have no idea where he's gone. 
Where he's gone is the crime boss's warehouse. Still held at gunpoint, Inky is helpless to watch as the money he just stole is counted and divvied up. And he's also helpless to do anything when a couple of thugs are ordered to escort Jamie away, knock her out, and stuff her in a crate. Of course, that never happens. She gives her captors the slip, and soon they're all trying to hunt her down. Inky is left alone, with his chimp, with the cash. He grabs his bags of money and slips out the back door of the warehouse, but then spots a police car and ducks back inside, deciding to climb some stairs to find another exit. When the actual gunplay starts, Inky drops the cash and is left hanging onto a catwalk by his fingernails. Jamie opts to delay her escape to save Inky, but they're still trapped. But Inky's chimp loves ringing any kind of alarm bell he sees, and Jamie and Inky are able to coax him into setting off the warehouse burglar alarm. This brings the cops racing to the scene where they catch, well, everyone except Jamie and Inky. Inky decides to go straight and work with the cops for a change, having gained that opportunity by rolling over on the guys who are trying to double-cross him. And, he says, Jamie's secret is safe with him. The End The Bionic Woman was in reasonably good company on ABC's Wednesday night lineup, where it led off the night. If you stayed with ABC after Bionic Woman, Beretta was up next, followed by Charlie's Angels. But that's part of the problem. The Bionic Woman's ratings were dropping, and this, the final episode of the second season, was where ABC decided to pull the plug. NBC rescued the show for its third and final season, but since the two Bionic shows were now on competing networks, this meant putting an end to the legendary multi-part team-up crossovers where you'd have the Six Million Dollar Man and the Bionic Woman teaming up against Bigfoot and Fembots and so on. The one link between the shows going forward would be Richard Anderson as Oscar Goldman, which meant he was in the unique position of being an actor playing the same character on two different networks. But even so much as mentioning Steve Austin was now off the table. As far as this season finale episode was concerned, its competition was Good Times on CBS and The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams on NBC. The episode was written by Kenneth Johnson, creator of The Bionic Woman, and directed by Alan J. Levi. It guest-starred Elisha Cook Jr. as Pinky, although he's only credited here as Elisha Cook. A well-known character actor who had been plying his trade since 1930, he appeared in dozens of movies and shows. Now, me being a Trekkie, what I remember him from best is my favorite episode of the original Star Trek, Court Martial, where he was Captain Kirk's eccentric defense attorney, Samuel T. Cogley. Actually, his performance may be why I love that episode as much as I do. He also appeared in The Wild Wild West, Batman, Perry Mason, The Man from Uncle, Wiz Kids, Alf, the 1980s Twilight Zone revival, and a bunch of episodes of Magnum P.I., as well as the TV movies The Night Stalker and Salem's Lot, and theatrical movies like Electric Light in Blue, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, 1941, Rosemary's Baby, and a little number called The Maltese Falcon. We lost Elijah Cook in 1995, and they haven't made another one like him yet. Any tension in Pinky's flashbacks to the break-in is completely undercut by the comedy music. In fact, there's a lot of comedy music in this episode that really sort of lets all the tension fizzle out of the room, even as the action is ramping up. The show doesn't really get genuinely funny until about 37 minutes in, is what I have in my notes. And here's the thing. I love Richard Anderson as Oscar, but I really needed to see him do a better job of selling the realization that his plan had been foiled. I needed to see the blood drain from Oscar's face here, and not a, you know, clenched jaw and let's go get him, because, you know, we let's go get him every week, man, come on. Part of what makes it funny is that for once, all of Oscar's best laid plans got completely circumvented by a bunch of two-bit crooks with the most stereotypical accents you can possibly imagine. A comedy episode of The Bionic Woman wasn't a terrible idea. Back in the days of, you know, 20, 22, 24, 26 episode seasons of television, yes, you could stop being so serious and make a funny one, or at least try. And this one felt a bit more like a try, which is kind of sad when you have a talent like Elisha Cook dropping by for one episode.
the new adventures of Batman, Birds of a Feather Fool Around Together, aired Saturday morning, May 7th, 1977, on CBS. Welcome to Yuck, the yearly underworld convention, where criminal masterminds convene on, well, a warehouse in Gotham City. And it's a good thing that Inky and his chimp didn't stick around. Yuck actually has bylaws, which is actually a funny thing for a bunch of lawbreakers if you think about it. And this meeting will see the election of a new Yuck president. The Penguin is in the running, as is the Joker, who is more than willing to buy his votes. Penguin ups the stakes in response. He promises to turn Batman and Robin to a life of crime. The Penguin plans to use something called Crime Slime to unleash the dynamic duo's basest instincts. He tests it out on the drivers of an armored car who suddenly decide it's totally cool to pull over on the side of the road and unload all of their money into the trunk of the Penguin Mobile. Satisfied that it'll work, the Penguin now decides to unleash the Crime Slime on Batman and the Boy Wonder. The Bat Signal interrupts a round of bowling at Stately Wayne Manor, though the bowling itself had already been interrupted by Batmite. Commissioner Gordon plays a taped message from the Penguin. He's turning himself over and ending his life of crime, but only if he can turn himself over to Batman at a time and place of the Penguin's choosing, which surely can't possibly be the slightest sign of a trap. Batman can't resist the bait, however, but he orders Batmite to stay with Commissioner Gordon for his own safety, because, yeah, this has got to be a trap. The distraction splits up the crime fighters, and Robin is abducted. The Penguin goes back to his headquarters with Batman in hot pursuit. Batmite appears in the passenger seat of the Batmobile, and Batman admits he could use a little help, but things don't go as planned. Exposure to the crime slime causes Penguin and Batmite to switch personalities, which is totally not what the crime slime was supposed to do. In the confusion, Batman and Robin are captured, and they also get a dose of the crime slime. And suddenly, they're ready to do crimes, with Brooklyn accents. Until Robin starts talking like a pirate, R. The Penguin directs the dynamic duo to steal a billion-dollar solid gold meteorite, which they deliver to the Yuck meeting. What else do Batman and Robin bring to the Yuck shindig? The entire Gotham Police Department. They had time to put on tiny masks and avoid the crime slime's effects. They are responsible for their own actions and their outrageous accents. But when Penguin, still in Batmite's body, tries to escape, it's Batmite in Penguin's body who stops him. With an assist from Batman and Robin, the Penguin, the Joker, and every other member of Yuck is now in police custody. Well, until next week. The end. The New Adventures of Batman was produced by our old friends, Filmation Studios, and was notable for bringing Adam West and Burt Ward back to the Batfold as the dynamic duo, having played those characters on live-action primetime TV in the late 60s. Virtually every other character that ever appeared in this show's 16-episode history was played by one of three other voice actors. Even after those 16 episodes completed their initial broadcast run, Filmation kept dropping them into other animated variety hours, such as the Batman Tarzan Adventure Hour and various other configurations, keeping these episodes in circulation well into the early 1980s, because Batman is forever. For schedule context, CBS was running new episodes of The Adventures of Batman up against NBC's repeats of the live-action show Monster Squad and ABC's repeats of The Croft Super Show. Both of those series had basically exhausted their new episodes before the end of 1976 and were now cycling through those late 76 episodes in reruns. This episode was written by Chuck Menville and Len Jansen, a powerhouse writing team with over 600 produced scripts to their names. Chuck and Len started working together on episodes of Dr. Kildare. They wrote the script for Disney's The Jungle Book, leading to a huge amount of animated work for TV. Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Around the World in 79 Days, Motor Mouse and Auto Cat, Groovy Ghoulies, Lassie's Rescue Rangers, Speed Buggy, the live-action Shazam, the animated Star Trek, Tarzan Lord of the Jungle, Arc 2, Secrets of Isis, Space Sentinels, Dozens of episodes of The Smurfs, The Biscuits, a lot of episodes of The Real Ghostbusters, the 90s revival of Land of the Lost, and they even squeezed in an episode script for the original Love Boat. 
Chuck Menville died in 1992, but Len has continued contributing scripts to the likes of Sonic the Hedgehog, Sonic Underground, and even Baywatch Nights. A lot of the Filmation shows they were involved with, they were also staff writers or producers. It is a legendary track record in a corner of the industry that needs lots of ideas and scripts as fast as you can turn them around. Was this one of their better scripts? <laughs> Probably not. But the cast seemed to have fun with it, getting to break character and do funny accents in a way that even the 60s Batman series didn't give them very many opportunities to do. We now bat pause for a word from our sponsor. Ashley Thomas is the nerdy blogger. Ashley has a master's degree in literature and language, and more than a decade's worth of experience at writing for web publications. If you're looking for someone to assist you with copy for your website, blog posts, email campaigns, web store, social media management, or assistance with search engine optimization, Ashley's your gal. Ashley also spends her time writing and podcasting about film, television, and comic books, contributing to Fangirlish.com, Sci-Fi 5, Podcast 616, We Are Starfleet, and Pop Culture Retro-Rama. You can learn more about Ashley and the work she does at nerdyblogging.wordpress.com. The Nerdy Blogger is proud to be a supporter of the logbook.com and its podcasts. Quark, the pilot, aired Saturday, May 7th, 1977 on NBC. The time is 1017, galaxy time, in the future. A massive space cruiser drifts through the vast blackness of the cosmos and dumps its garbage overboard. Another vessel, not quite as mind-bogglingly large, not quite as sleek, picks up the trash under the command of Captain Adam Quark of the United Galaxies Sanitation Patrol, this is his story, these are his voyages, and those of his crew, including the twin Bettys, cantankerous scientist Dr. O.B. Mudd, and his amorous robot Andy, and chief engineer Gene, a transmute whose personality changes from masculine to feminine, seemingly at random. Quark's plasma pet, Ergo, is a playful blob, maybe a little too playful for Quark. Back at home base on Space Station Perma-1, Station Administrator Otto Palindrome relays terrible news to the head of the galactic government. It, no, really, he's just a floating head. A cloud of space-borne enzymes is eating everything in its path. The only ship that stands in its way is Quark's. Palindrome and the head hatch a plan that involves ordering Quark to put his ship directly in the path of the enzyme cloud and self-destruct. But it turns out that the cost of sending such detailed instructions is overwhelming, so Palindrome and the Head instead spend their time concentrating on bringing down the word count. Not that it matters. Mud makes Adam aware of the enzyme cloud at more or less the same time it envelops the ship and starts chowing down, trying to get to the tasty, tasty life forms inside. The Bettys are prepared to face death alongside their commander. Mud isn't quite sure how to end the crisis while also saving the ship. Andy gets horny for the control unit that dumps the garbage overboard, and in the course of manhandling, robo-handling this device, he tears it out of the wall. The controls detached, the ship blasts all of the waste collected from every other ship and outpost in this part of the galaxy back into space at high speed, and the enzyme cloud chases the garbage instead, since it contains even more organic matter. The day has been saved. The end. And sometime early in 1978, after there's been time to retool the show, also the beginning. Richard Benjamin stars as Adam Quark. At this point, he was best known for starring in Catch-22, The Sunshine Boys, and Westworld. That is the original movie. Though he was about to turn a corner in his career toward directing. After Quark came and went, in between acting assignments, Richard started directing TV and quickly graduated to movies. You might have even seen some of them. My Favorite Year, City Heat, The Money Pit, My Stepmother is an Alien, Little Nikita, Mermaids, Made in America, and, as I'm recording this, Richard is attached to direct an upcoming movie called Back of Book, 
at the sprightly young age of 85. You go, Richard. Patricia and Sib Barnstable as Betty and Betty, identical twin natives of Louisville, Kentucky. They have appeared in the likes of The Love Boat, Christmas specials hosted by Bob Hope and Mac Davis, and a handful of TV movies, but of course, what they are most famous for is being the Doublemint Twins in a long-running series of commercials for Doublemint Gum. Douglas V. Fowley is Dr. O.B. Mudd, and this character does not make it past this pilot episode. He was replaced by Richard Kelton as the more obviously spockish Ficus. The fact that his first real scene in the show involves asking Quark to transfer to another ship is kind of a signal flare that we already know this character doesn't work in the format of the show. The most interesting character note about Mud is that he's extremely prejudiced against Gene, and Quark has to keep stepping on that. Mud was never seen after this episode. He probably retired on some planet where he could watch Fox Space News all the time. The actor, Douglas Fowley, deserved better material than this. He was Doc Holliday in the TV series The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp. He played the film director in Singing in the Rain. He retired from acting in 1979, and we lost Douglas in 1998. Now, unlike Dr. Mudd, Dr. Otto Palindrome knows that there are options well beyond ladies and gentlemen. Be like Dr. Otto Palindrome, please. In fact, let's talk about that, and let's talk about Jean, or Jean, whose shifting gender and personality is played for laughs, but, boy, it just seems like it's right on the cusp of addressing concepts decades ahead of their time, such as gender fluidity. It's also worth pointing out that Jean gets toned down significantly after the pilot, because the feminine personality that he, or she, displays in the pilot is basically played as an effeminate male stereotype. So maybe don't give them too much credit for being ahead of the curve here. Now that being said, in the remaining episodes after the pilot, Tim Tomerson dropped some comedy gold that very few people bothered to watch. I am always amazed that this same actor got locked into tough guy and heavy roles in B-movies like the Trancers series, because at the time he landed a role on Quark, his main claim to fame was comedy. In the series proper, Gene's gender and personality swaps were induced by stress. Here in the pilot, they're random. With the toning down of this character in the episodes that came after the pilot, you really kind of get a sense that some boardroom of NBC executives broke out in a cold sweat from feeling like Buck Henry was handing them a show with an almost but not quite gay character. Now, Andy, the android, or the robot, he's quite possibly the worst designed robot in the history of genre TV or film. I know I once made fun of the fantastic journey for using studio camera pedestals as robots, but you know what? Those at least look kind of industrial, and when you remove them from their context, take the camera off the top of them, they do look reasonably futuristic. Andy is none of the above. There are lots and lots of vintage Star Trek sound effects throughout this show. And speaking of concepts straight out of Star Trek, Quark is just now starting to keep a diary of his adventures. Is he not already required to keep a captain's log, or is that not expected for a garbage scowl? Now, obviously, the diary or the log entry, whatever you want to call it, it's intended to introduce all of the other characters on the show very quickly, but it feels very pilot-y, and it feels very, very clumsy. The forearmed interface telling the head about his emergency order to send a message to Quark, that'll be $422,000 for 10 words and 68000 for each additional word. Man, this joke only works if you're old enough to remember that telegrams were a thing. Never mind long-distance phone calls or toll calls. Hasn't exactly aged well. Which may describe the pilot for Quark as a whole. It has a couple of tantalizing concepts that need to be explored rather than just played for cheap laughs, but it instead gives the bulk of its screen time to even dumber gags. Now, a lot was expected of Buck Henry. He was, after all, half of the team that created Get Smart. And the other half of that team was Mel Brooks. But don't think that Mel was the brains of the operation because he had also had a TV flop in the early 70s, a 
spoof of the Robin Hood legend called When Things Were Rotten. So, you know, even Mel was not batting a thousand at this point. The thought of a sci-fi spoof treating the genre and the genre's tropes with the kind of simultaneous finely tuned love and irreverence that gets Smart had for the spy genre was, and still is, kind of tantalizing. Look, Get Smart had more than its share of dumb gags, but it also had a cast with both great chemistry and major comedy chops. I'm sure if I went back and watched the very first episode of Get Smart, it would turn out not to be the show I remember from reruns of the later episodes. But the pilot for Quark is just painful in places. Quark did improve quite a bit when it returned in 1978, but I think it's Quark that benefited the most from the elephant in the room that this retrogram dances around, namely that little flick called Star Wars. Quark's pilot is obviously setting its sights on Star Trek. The head is literally the head of a Federation-like government. Even Quark's lowly space garbage truck has a quasi-military command structure, and we make fun of the science officer who has all the answers, with this show's science officer who has absolutely none of the answers. When Quark returned from months of retooling in 1978, it was instantly evident that Star Wars, as well as the various flavors of space opera that influenced Star Wars, struck the show's creator and future writers as worthier targets, and that led to far better episodes. Well, seven far better episodes before Quark was cancelled anyway. Quark was the second pilot in a row on NBC's schedule on May 7th. It followed another pilot called Off the Wall. Quark was up against an episode of the Bob Newhart show on CBS, while ABC's schedule for the evening was dominated by the James Bond movie Thunderball. But then, on that same Saturday night, we got Man from Atlantis 2, The Death Scouts, Saturday, May 7th, 1977, also on NBC. The story so far, he was found washed ashore, covered in seaweed, but not dead. In fact, he didn't start to show signs of life, until he was taken back to the water. He's Mark Harris, and though his memory seems a bit hazy on the matter, he might just be the last survivor of the lost continent of Atlantis. When he finds himself among humans, he finds helpful ones, such as Dr. Elizabeth Merrill, researcher for the Foundation for Oceanic Research, who first studied him and realized he needed to be taken back to the sea, and C.W. Crawford, the Foundation's uptight but sympathetic director, and then he finds humans who don't exactly leave him with a good feeling about humans, whether they are military commanders who want to find out more about Mark's ability to stay underwater for long periods of time, for use in espionage and warfare, or actual villains such as the scheming, maniacal Mr. Schubert. Mark eventually joins the Foundation, staying among the humans whose values he shares, and trying to teach them how to live in closer harmony with nature, perhaps like his people might have, if only he can remember, and helping them solve their problems on land and sea. And now, Man from Atlantis 2, the Death Scouts. Something emerges from the ocean floor, something that's definitely not a natural formation. The camera rises from this site in the depths until it reaches the bottom of a boat where some scuba divers have just resurfaced from some time in the water. A larger party boat is a small distance away. Something like dust rises toward the boat, almost like ink. When it reaches the surface, the water almost appears to be boiling. Nearby seabirds freak out and fly elsewhere. One of the scuba divers sticks his fingers in the water and is amazed when his fingers, moments after they come in contact with water that appears to be boiling, are burned. Then a slimy gray hand, a seemingly human hand, grabs the female scuba diver and pulls her into the water, and she doesn't come back up. One by one, her two companions are pulled in, and all three are pulled under. The screaming and yelling accompanying this gets the attention of the occupants of the other boat, who put in an emergency call to the Coast Guard. Well, that's a thing that happened, but meanwhile, at the Foundation for Oceanic Research, that emergency call is also picked up. Elizabeth and Mark head out to the site of the incident by boat, where they're met by the Coast Guard. Donning scuba gear, just for appearances, Mark dives into the water, ditches the gear, and investigates. He then comes back up, putting the scuba gear back on before servicing. He urgently tells Elizabeth to tell the Coast Guard he found nothing, and that he will explain when they're gone. While they're on the way, the Foundation gets a visit from a couple of kids who say they have a plant that makes ink, and they found it in the water. 
but when they open the box they put it in, the plant is now a rock. When Elizabeth and Mark return with a rock of their own, she discovers that their rock registers radioactivity. And the rock the kids brought in? Once it's put back in water, it is indeed a plant and a live one. Elizabeth calls one of her contacts and learns of a meteor sighting several days ago at sea, an event that is in a straight line with where the divers disappeared and where the mysterious plant was found on shore. Time to crew up the cetacean, the Foundation's submarine, and go have a look. But while they're gone, oh, hey, those missing divers are back. Well, two of them. They just walk ashore in a trance-like state, communicating with each other with a strange warbling noise. Oh, and they have webbed fingers, just like Mark. And if any beachgoers approach them in a way they don't like, the two divers link their arms and stun those people with a powerful electrical discharge. They continue on foot away from the beach and into the nearby town. Aboard the cetacean, Elizabeth receives word that the body of the third diver also washed ashore, this one very much dead and covered with strange markings consistent with electrocution. Time for the sub to come up to a stop and for Mark to dive and investigate. Hey, here's that obviously artificial thing on the seafloor that we spotted at the beginning of the show. But it's bigger than you might have thought, big enough that there's a hatch Mark can swim into. He's wearing a tracking device, but once he enters the colorful, futuristic control room behind the hatch, the cetacean can't pick up his signal anymore. He finds something on the floor, which, as we discover via something dangerously close to 1977 primetime's most awkwardly lingering crotch shot, matches the strange, hieroglyphic-like design of the swim trunks he's been wearing since he was first discovered. You know, I really hope he's watched those at some point. <clears throat> anyway, after examining some control panels with cryptic symbols on them, Mark returns to the sea and to the cetacean. Cut to our favorite pair of possessed divers. They find a fish market. The woman starts making those strange noises again. The man tells her, speak as they speak, to which she replies, I need nourishment. And while I'm sure he totally meant for her to talk in this strangely stilted, there's something wrong with these folks kind of way, he has to admit that he is hungry too. Mark tells everyone on the cetacean what he's seen, and Miller is sure that what Mark visited was a spacecraft from an aquatic planet. Mark feels strangely certain that they are not here to hurt anybody, you know, aside from the dudes that they zapped at the beach. Elizabeth corners Mark because she feels he's holding back, and finally he just comes out and says it. They are my people. They have come for me. As soon as the cetacean returns to its dock at the Foundation, Mark learns of the recent sightings of a decidedly odd couple in wetsuits, wandering around and doing and saying weird things. He and Miller set out on foot to find them. Because if these are Mark's people, they are continuing to weird everyone else out. Since they are beings from the sea, fresh as harvest day, they avail themselves of the demonstration unit at a place selling hot tubs. And the proprietor isn't too happy about it. Mark catches up with them as they leave that business, and they seem to recognize that he's one of them. And then they zap him, in front of a police car. Mark's attackers run to a bridge and leap into the water, evading capture, and make their way back toward the undersea hatch. After being brought back to the Foundation to recover from his injuries, Mark sets out to confront his people and manages to beat them to the hatch. He and the man have a very brief struggle with Mark emerging victorious, and he then captures the woman and brings her back to the waiting sub. He then goes back for the man and brings him aboard the cetacean too. The two unearthly divers try to use their combined powers to take over the sub, but Mark and Miller outthink them, bringing them back to the foundation. They freak out when they see a repairman's welding torch, giving Miller the idea that to keep these two cooperative, fire can always be used as a threat. Mark understandably has a lot of questions for them, but they do not answer until the head of the Foundation, C.W., invites his contact from the NSA to come see what may be the first aliens to set foot on Earth. When the visitor from the NSA realizes that these beings have the means to either duplicate human beings or take over their bodies, that's all he needs to hear to call up the Navy, and now suddenly the divers become talkative. He's Zos. She's Leola. They know who Mark is but that's all they say before they're marched away under guard to separate vehicles as a precaution to keep them from linking up again. Mark isn't happy about this, and he leaves the Foundation. In the blink of an eye, he returns to the sea. 
Mark resurfaces at a secure Coast Guard facility, distracts the guards, and goes to check on Zos and Leola. He asks Leola some more questions and gets more answers. The symbol on his swim trunks, the symbol that's in their submerged ship, is the symbol of the planet they come from. That planet is not in Earth's solar system, but orbits another star far away. Their actual form is nothing like a clunky human being. Leola says that on their planet, their race is small and very beautiful. But they started out on land until massive volcanic activity on their planet drove them to the seas. They evolved to live underwater over time, but the elders are now at war with their own children. Zos and Leola are a scouting party to find a new home for the elders, and hey, Earth's oceans meet their needs perfectly. And so does Mark. He can be the mediator between the water people and the land dwellers. Mark can take his rightful place in charge of the entire Earth. But that's not a role Mark wants. Leola seems to wilt a little. She needs nourishment, real nourishment. Namely, that plant that turned into a rock and then back into a plant, the one the kids brought to the Foundation. Mark just shows up at the lab and gets the plant, speaking briefly with Elizabeth before he goes. He returns to visit Zos and Leola, this time with the full knowledge of the guards, to deliver the plant. Hey, Mark Harris invented DoorDash. But as soon as Mark and the guards leave, hey, that's not food. It's some kind of weapon. Yeah, Zos and Leola are on the loose again, and their intentions seem less than friendly. Zos wants Leola to kill the guards with the plant weapon, but she says there is no need to use deadly force. Back at the Foundation, Elizabeth breaks the news to Mark. Everything Leola told him was what he wanted to hear. She was dangling his lost origins in front of him like a carrot. Then the Foundation gets a call. Zos and Leola have escaped, and they have hurt people in order to do it. And it's Mark's fault. He handed them the means to do this, and they've been lying to him all along. So now it's up to him to stop them. Back aboard the cetacean, back to the ocean, and back to the hatch of the submerged spaceship, hopefully before the Navy finds it, and either raises it from the seafloor or blows it up. But the Navy can't even find the two escaped aliens. Mark sets out to head his people off at the pass, but first he asks for a couple of waterproof emergency flares. He swims to the hatch, reaching it before Zos and Leola return. He's waiting for them. When Leola refuses to join Zos in fighting Mark, Zos shoots her with the plant weapon. But that means he now faces Mark alone, and Mark's got a couple of flares in hand. Zos is petrified with his fear of fire, and lunges towards some kind of control on the wall, activating a self-destruct device. Mark grabs Leola and escapes. Zos jumps into an opening in the wall and disappears like he's beamed himself up to somewhere. Mark and Leola barely have time to get a safe distance away before the ship blows, and then they return to the cetacean. Leola's in pretty rough shape. Her human body is damaged beyond repair. And after a few moments, Mark is once again the last of his kind left on Earth, alone among humans. The End Man from Atlantis to the Death Scouts was written by Robert Lewin. As a writer, Robert sold scripts to The Monsters, Rawhide, Twelve O'Clock High, Gunsmoke, Mission Impossible, I Spy, Judd for the Defense, Kung Fu, Starsky and Hutch, and four episodes of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, where he was also briefly a producer. One of his next-gen episodes was the one that introduced lore and the backstory of Data's origins and Noonien Sung. So if you've been watching Star Trek Picard at all, you know that Robert's work in the Star Trek franchise casts a really long shadow. He also wrote the Oscar-nominated screenplay of the movie The Bold and the Brave in 1956, based on his own experiences in the Army in Europe during World War II. As a producer, he racked up credits on Dan August and The Paper Chase. We lost Robert in 2004, and sadly, this was his sole contribution to Man from Atlantis. Now, this movie of the week was directed by Mark Daniels, and Mark was one of the stalwart frequent flyer directors on the original Star Trek, directing not just 15 episodes, but some of the best episodes of the series. The Menagerie, Space Seed, Mirror Mirror, The Doomsday Device, and... Uh, Spock's Brain. Can't win them all. He directed 19 episodes of Hogan's Hero, 33 episodes of Marcus Welby, M.D., and 86 episodes of Alice. He was very much in demand until his death in 1989 at the age of 77. And again, this is his only work on Man from Atlantis. 
Now, again, Man from Atlantis was up against the back half of ABC's run of the James Bond movie Thunderball. Its competition on CBS was their Saturday night comedy lineup, All in the Family, Alice, and The Carol Burnett Show. And no, the episode of Alice it was up against was not one of the ones directed by Mark Daniels. Elizabeth says to Miller at one point in the show, You and your college education. Wow, you talk about a different era. So she's a marine biologist without a college education? I mean, that's kind of the implication there. In the early 2010s, I was turned down for a janitorial position I applied for because I didn't meet a degree requirement. Oh, how things change. There's a really weird scene where, after Mark disappears in a huff, Miller brings Elizabeth some of those little wind-up dolphin tub toys that were all over the place in the 70s. I think I had some, too. It's at such a remove from the tone of pacing of everything else that's going on, it just kind of feels like they came up three minutes short and had to come up with a scene that they could shoot on the standing set of the Foundation Lab. It's It just sticks out from the rest of the show. Leola talking about the gulf between children and parents on her home planet. In our world, children are the enemy. At one time, parents were firm in what they believed, but they became weary and unsure of themselves. They no longer understood right or wrong, good or evil, work or idleness, and the children began to hate them and to kill them. Yeah, okay, get off my lawn. Is is this just a generational thing that people start to believe at a certain age, that the younger generation is inferior and weak and has, you know, no values? Can you imagine how that little monologue would be interpreted today? You know, you'd wind up with some guy on Twitter going, Oh, those kids and their woke mind virus! I really love the music score for the scene where Mark first enters the futuristic undersea spaceship. It's really cool electronic music for a time when a lot of electronic music in film and TV tended toward the abstract. And I'm thinking there of stuff like the Andromeda Strain and early 70s episodes of Doctor Who. In the climactic fight between Zos and Leola and Mark and the ship, the electronic motif is back, but this time blended very gracefully with a full orchestra, and holy cow, La La Land, Entrada, by soundtrack, somebody, where is the score from the entire Man from Atlantis series? This is some incredible stuff in this one. Fortunately, these scenes in the spaceship play out with virtually no other audio. The music is once again by Fred Carlin, building on the theme that he established in the first TV movie. And right at the end credits, Herb Solo has brought Bob Justman aboard as a supervising producer. Man, all you need now is a Roddenberry and a Fontana working with these guys, and you're on to something. And really, that's kind of the problem with all of Man from Atlantis after this movie. The Death Scouts is a fantastic piece of mythology building and mystery, giving us at least a taster of what Mark Harris's origins might be. Now, I say might because Leola may have been lying to him with every word that came out of her mouth. But this drops the tantalizing hint that if more of his kind come to Earth, that might not be so good for Earth and everything living on it. Which, of course, puts Mark in a bind when he is trying to learn more about where he came from. It's very nicely constructed, and this TV movie alone pushes Man from Atlantis firmly into serious sci-fi territory, and we never follow up on any of this in the rest of the show. Not in the two TV movies that followed in rapid succession, not in the weekly series that didn't even last a full season. The Death Scouts gave Man from Atlantis so much to build on, and as much as I like the rest of the series in general, it's hard not to see the failure to follow up on this movie as an epic fumble 15 yards away from a touchdown. It's a reminder yet again that TV was done so very, very differently back then. All you could hope to do was stay on the air long enough to make enough episodes for a viable syndication package that would run for years afterward and rake in those tasty residuals. World-building and long-running story arcs work against that kind of plan. Syndicated shows tended to run in nearly random order in reruns, so you couldn't have a Game of Thrones. You couldn't have any of the modern Star Trek or DC Comics shows in the 1970s. Even if you wanted to do a running serialized story, you could almost be assured that any syndicated reruns would make mincemeat of the running order of that story. 
It's just kind of sad that so much was built here, and we just didn't revisit it for the remainder of the series. The script and the direction and even the score took things to a whole new level. It's almost like the show decided it couldn't stay on that level. For whatever reason that has been lost to time, either Robert Lewin left Man from Atlantis, or Man from Atlantis left Robert Lewin, and going forward, there was none of this unifying world-building vision that he could have brought to it, where he could have been this show's DC Fontana. Don't be alarmed. It's only the death breath of the Dark Lord. Don't be scared. It's only an Imperial cruiser making the jump to light speed. Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present... Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. King of the Castle, Episode 1, Sunday, May 8th, 1977, on HTV, Wales in the West. Roland is a choir boy, and most of the time he spends in the church cloisters is spent with his nose in a comic book, rather than learning the next piece of music particularly well. Worse yet, Roland has a solo, and rehearsal doesn't go well. The choir instructor roars at him. You're getting an education in exchange for your voice and your attention and he follows that up with a threat to expel Roland and tears the comic book to shreds, which is when Roland says it wasn't even his comic book. After school, Roland returns home, a featureless apartment building, and he notices another kid who lives there running away when he spots Roland. He's gone to tell the other kids Roland is coming. Whether at school or simply trying to go home, Roland finds himself dealing with bullies the whole time. He tries to use the elevator instead of the one stairwell that leads up, only to find that the elevator is out of order. Roland begins climbing the stairs, and predictably, the other kids are waiting to ambush him, throwing water and garbage and other things at him. Roland does the only thing he can. He runs up the stairs as fast as he can, trying to run the gauntlet just to reach home. But the other kids are waiting, led by a particularly cruel boy nicknamed Ripper. Roland can't find a single sympathetic face in the crowd. Even an adult passing through fails to intervene on Roland's behalf. By the time he is able to get past them, Roland's school uniform is torn. His homework and sheet music have been torn to shreds. At home, Roland's family seems almost oblivious to his problems. His father is a saxophonist who seems uninterested in parenting, while his stepmother, who seems slightly more interested in Roland, has no real sway and can't get through to his father. Roland's dad is more upset about what happened to the school uniform than what happened to the boy wearing it. But hey, he's a busy jazz musician. He has Roland help him carry his instruments and gear down to his van so he can go play a gig. See you tomorrow, kid. Now Roland has to go back up the stairs. The building caretaker asks him to take some tools with him that were left by the repairman working on the elevator. Roland should be able to find the repairman on the 10th floor. Roland goes up the stairs and wanders into the empty elevator, but doesn't find the repairman. What he does find is that he's now cornered in an elevator with an out-of-order sign by Ripper and his gang. When Roland looks at the tools in his hand and realizes he's got a box knife and a wrench, he decides that the repairman's tools have just become his weapons. This is your periodic reminder that British children's TV really, really doubles down on darkness sometimes. Ripper draws his own switchblade and issues a challenge to Roland. All right, you started this by drawing a weapon. Now let's see you finish it. Roland has a choice to make, and he makes it. He throws the box knife away. He just wants Ripper to leave him alone. Downstairs, Mr. Vine, the building caretaker, is approached by two policemen who received complaints of a disturbance in the apartment building stairwell. The cops break up the fight, and Roland runs into the elevator with Mr. Vine hot on his heels warning him it's out of order. The door of the elevator closes behind Roland, and it begins falling. Roland sinks to the floor and braces himself in the corner as the elevator plummets down toward the basement level. For a moment he sees... numbers? As the screeching of metal on metal drowns out all other sound. The elevator slams down and the door opens. 
Roland finds himself in a dungeon complete with torches and stone walls. The hell kind of basement is this? The elevator shuts behind him again, and then suddenly it's like there was never an elevator there. Roland is trapped. Something on the other side of the door shuffles closer. The door begins to open. To be continued. King of the Castle is the invention of a British writing team known as the Bristol Boys, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. They also wrote the memorably unnerving children's series Sky in 1975, which we have covered in other editions of Retrogram, and had been writing for Doctor Who as freelancers since the 1971 season. Oddly enough, a set of scripts that Bob and Dave had just recently turned in for Doctor Who introduced K-9, everyone's favorite robot dog, and that script had already been shot in April. So if you think K-9 was a response to R2-D2, that's actually wrong. It was a similarly cute robot conceived and designed independent of any knowledge of Star Wars, which didn't premiere in the UK until months after its US premiere. But K-9's first episode didn't air until October 1977, so it was common for viewers with no knowledge of how long it takes to make stuff to assume, oh, they just wanted their own cute robot on Doctor Who. Bob and Dave's writing partnership eventually ended, and Bob went solo to create Into the Labyrinth, which was not only a cult classic with kids in the UK, but made it to the States as part of Nickelodeon's early supernatural programming block, The Third Eye. Bob went on to do a lot of work with Aardman Animation, and was one of the creators of the Wallace and Gromit series. He co-wrote the screenplay for Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Were-Rabbit, which won an Academy Award for Best Animated Feature in 2006, thus making Bob the only writer associated with Doctor Who who has ever won an Oscar. We lost Bob in 2021, and we lost Dave Martin in 2007. Starring in King of the Castle is young Philip DaCosta, a child actor who had already appeared in a number of things, from a 1970 production of Scrooge to episodes of Doomwatch, Zed Cars, and Scum. As far as IMDb shows, his acting career stretches only into the early 1990s. He's quite good here. I found myself relating to Roland quite a bit. So, no notes for Philip. He is really the heart of this show, and played the part of Roland quite skillfully. There is some class context to this story that may require some explanation for American listeners. Roland and his family live in council housing or council flats, which is a bit like what's called Section 8 housing in the United States. You have to apply for it, you have to demonstrate a financial need for assistance in obtaining housing, and once you're in it, well, you don't get a lot of say from that point on. It's sort of like the unspoken message from above is, shut up and be glad you got it. If you're a fan of other British TV, this is also the kind of housing that Rose Tyler and her mother live in in the early seasons of a modern Doctor Who that started in 2005. Roland's family is obviously trying to get him more of a posh education than he might otherwise be expected to have, so his stepmother's concerns about his performance in school are a real thing. She's worried that he may fail to escape the same lower-class, lower-income rut that she and Roland's dad are in. And, by the way, good on you, stepmom. You show a hell of a lot more concern for the kid's well-being than his hipster dad does. <laughs> there is there's a scene early in the show in the uh, in the church where one of the teachers just screams silence in the house of god and i know this scene is supposed to be unnerving where one of the teachers trying to bring order to a gaggle of disorderly choir boys but i can't help but find it funny and very telling when someone just jumps straight to shouting at people it's like it's the sign of someone who doesn't know how to function at a lower volume for whatever reason so really they've gotten to like the shouting I've always found that people like this are really saying, I am barely in control of this situation. I'm already scared of losing what little control I still have over the situation. So yes, I'm going straight to the shouting, which I quite like anyway, because it makes me feel powerful. But what it really telegraphs is how powerless I am without the shouting. There is some striking directing and camera work here. Some of it strikingly good, some of it pretty vague. The almost-a-knife-fight could have been staged more clearly and more menacingly, but I can also be sympathetic to the real-world limitation that you don't want a bunch of kids or a bunch of child actors going crazy with prop knives. 
This is one of two episodes of this seven-episode series directed by Peter Hammond, an actor-turned-director who is no relation to Peter J. Hammond, creator of Sapphire and Steel. As with many other children's TV productions that came out of HTV, a regional broadcaster covering the West of England and Wales, the executive producer was Patrick Dromgol, who we've mentioned in other retrograms in the past. You've seen Patrick's name on a lot of HTV's cult classic output, like Children of the Stones, Into the Labyrinth, Sky, Robin of Sherwood, and even She-Wolf of London. The end credits are kind of funny, and I don't think they're supposed to be funny, but accidentally they are funny. For every page of credits of cast and crew, you know, in between pages of credits, the camera zooms in a little more on the door in the dungeon at roughly that rhythm. After about the second short, sharp zoom in, it becomes unintentionally funny, especially because the end credit music is harkening back to the organ music from the early scenes in the boys' school. It is doing absolutely nothing to sell any kind of tension here. It just seems like trumpets should be going ba-ba with each zoom in and longer each time, but it, that doesn't happen. <laughs> the second episode, if you're wondering what this show is actually about, goes on to reveal that Roland is in a kind of parallel world now. All of the people who exist in his dismal day-to-day -day life, Mr. Vine, Ripper, the choir instructor, the other teachers, the other kids, even his family, they also exist in that world fulfilling very different roles, or in some cases, very similar ones. And it all becomes a kind of test of character for Roland. Given the chance, do you torment your tormentors, or do you try to help them? The stylistic underpinnings of the alternate world owe a lot to Alice in Wonderland, or at least to filmed versions of Alice in Wonderland. And this is really an interesting and sadly obscure little fantasy series, and we're lucky it's on DVD, at least in Region 2, thanks to Network. Here in the 21st century in the world of streaming TV, a new sci-fi series is considered a daunting bit of spending for any of the studios, networks, or streaming services. They're not all necessarily space-based, but visual effects often figure heavily into the calculus, along with sets and costumes, which, if you're dealing with a futuristic piece, cannot just be bought off the rack. 1970s TV labored under some of the same notions that sci-fi was expensive, and its miniature photography and specialized sets and costumes and props were a huge expense, but there seemed to be a sort of unspoken agreement between the networks and their audiences that, while you might get some sci-fi or fantasy on TV, it was not going to be as glitzy as a major movie. Expensive shows like Star Trek and Space 1999 had come and spent a packet of money, and yet still got cancelled. But look at what was surviving for three or more seasons now. Superhero shows such as The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Wonder Woman, and in the months and years ahead, shows like The Incredible Hulk. But with Star Wars, that unspoken agreement kind of crumbled, and the calculus of putting sci-fi on a screen of any size was recomputed, because it came along and changed all of the expectations of what the audience thought science fiction should look like on film. And how did genre TV respond? We'll answer that when we return to a later point in 1977. 1977 ASW, that is. Thanks for listening to Retrogram. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Additional music was by Dr. Frankenstein, DZ, Andrew Howes, and Hermelin, also available on Free Music Archive. If you're listening to this and you haven't already joined the ranks of the Logbooks Patreon supporters, you really need to put that on your to-do list. Even if you can only pitch in a little bit, even that little bit helps keep the Logbook.com and the Logbook.media and all of the related podcasts and videocasts going. You could be like Philip and Kevin and Ferg and Darwin and Cindy and Icy Robots and Paul and Mark and Charles and Ashley and sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash the logbook. You get show notes and occasional outtakes and other fun stuff. And of course, you get an invite to join our lively little Discord community where we're plotting to take over the world. 
Okay, we're not really planning to take over the world, but we are chatting a lot, and there are some cat pictures involved. And if you're not a fan of Patreon, hey, we totally get it. You can also use coffee. That's ko-fi.com if you want to just throw us a one-time donation. Thanks for listening. As always, Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com. Thank you.